On today's episode of Come Pray With Me, I will be interviewing Rabbi Miller from the Women's Rabbinic Network. She will be sharing her journey to becoming a rabbi with us, as well as the various historical roles women have played in Judaism. She also runs her own religious podcast called People Keeping It Sacred, as well as a website of the same name, known as KITS for Keeping It Sacred. It is dedicated to starting an interfaith dialogue. The acronym comes from her late grandmother, Kit Kirchenbaum, who inspired her to start her faith journey as a rabbi. Welcome to the show, Rabbi Miller. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to be with us. My absolute pleasure. Great to see you, Sarah. Thank you so much. So my first question is, what processes does someone have to go through in order to become a rabbi? That is a great question. It's one that I did not actually ask uh, earlier in my life. I just kind of thought there were little rabbis and they grew up to be big rabbis. And I didn't realize there's actually a process involved um, <laughs> as you crack up. <laughs> it's true. Um, you know, I there's something that's it's like a graduate school. There's a rabbinical program for the reform and conservative movements. It's about five years. For other movements, it can be as few as two years, or there's some other programs out there. Um, but the process is really, number one, you need to figure out that you want to become a rabbi. Usually that comes in the form of a calling, um, not necessarily in the way that Christians feel like there's a calling, but maybe, you know, it's, it's just a way of saying that your internal compass is telling you, like, this is your life path. You kind of know it, like when you meet a good friend and you're like, oh, this person and I just click. Uh, for me, that rabbinic calling just came because I realized that I love working with people. I love studying texts. I love extracting the values, morals, and lessons from our tradition. Um, and, uh, and it just was a really great fit. And then I did also take one of those tests at the end of college. What profession should you be? And it actually did say clergy. So first, a person needs to really figure out that they want to do this. Um, I would also recommend talking with different rabbis of different um, life experiences, because there's lots of different paths to the rabbinate or in the once you're in the rabbinate and uh, just to be able to think about what you want your life to look like after and once you've then really decided because once you become a rabbi that's a big deal um, then you uh, after undergrad you go ahead and you talk with the admissions counselor, Rabbi Alan Allenberg, at Adam Allenberg, sorry, uh, at Hebrew Union College. Uh, if you want to become a reform rabbi, you can look into Jewish Theological Seminary or the American Jewish University if you're interested in the conservative movement and other organizations as well. There's something called AJR, another one called RRC for the Reconstructionist Movement. And um, you apply. And a lot of that, there's an interview process. There's a lot of questions. I remember one of the questions was, name all of the concerts you've been to in the past three years, which was so interesting because they really wanted to get a sense of who you are as a person, what kind of books you read, um, what, you know, what your faith journey has been, what your professional journey has been. And I found it was really instructive to, to see that it's not just a graduate school. It's not just like, you know, you're, you're learning intellectual knowledge here. It's you are becoming and embodying this role in society that's sacred and that's really special. And, and to do that, you're going to be giving your full effort. All that you are is going to be poured into this lot in life. 
and to really get to know you as a person is a, it's really special, a special process. So uh, after all of that, then usually the first year, or maybe the third year, depending on what movement you're in, uh, you would go and you live in Israel for that year. And then the other four years, you're back stateside, learning how to be a rabbi, interning at different places, studying all kinds of texts on the way to becoming a rabbi. rabbi you can get your MA in Hebrew literature or Hebrew letters. Uh, you can even pursue an MA in Jewish education as well. It's a lot. <laughs> it's really cool. That's very unique how comprehensive it is, but also how there's a real desire to get to know what each individual person is like. And in a lot of other places, it's just like, okay, do you remember this part of this passage? And can you name these three important people? But there's just like, okay, we kind of want to know what you're actually like since you're going to be a leader for a lot of people in our faith. Totally. And you're a symbolic exemplar too, right? Symbolically, you represent something and are held to a particular standard. Um, and in the rabbinical uh, professional organizations like the CCAR, the Central Conference of American Rabbis, we have a code of ethics that we need to know and review every year and um, adhere to. So there's is a really high standard. So, you know, and over those five years, so many people invest in you, right? You're all, not only your professors, but the communities, your people, I feel, have made me into the rabbi that I am. And, you know, you want to come back to the community and serve the community from there. So it's a really, it's a really sacred journey to be able to uh, engage with people in such a deep way to be to be nourished by people and nourished by the text and then to come back to be able to nourish the people and uh, with the text and with the rituals and tradition. So what are some of the roles that rabbis play in their synagogues and in their communities? That's such a great question because um, one of the ways that I relate to the rabbinate is also almost like an undecided major in college because there are so many paths you can take. You can become a chaplain and I've done almost all of them. You can become a chaplain. You can be a professor at a university. You can work at a Jewish day school. You can work at a small congregation, a large congregation. You could do independent work as a rabbi or become an author. All of those things I have done and, and have really enjoyed each one for what it is and, and um, all of the, the benefits. In each way, you're kind of learning a new uh, spiritual skill and a new uh, professional skill and um, to be able to respond to people in all of those settings you know you, you forget how much spirituality is infused in all of those settings and to be able to bring that into the situation and that awareness of uh, of the sacred that is there is a, an awesome responsibility that sounds incredible. So could you tell us a little bit more about the Women's Rabbinic Network and what work do they do and how would someone who would like to support their mission get involved? Absolutely. Thank you so much. So most people are very surprised to hear that the WRN, the Women's Rabbinic Network, is 40 years old because they don't really see. I know they saw the expression on your face. It, it's a very big surprise that, you know, women have been rabbis in the reform movement since 1972 when Rabbi Sally Prezand was ordained. Um, but even before that, there's a, a, a lesser known rabbi who actually just a couple of days ago, 
celebrate, we celebrated her ordination uh, in 1935 in Berlin. It was Rabbi Regina Jonas. And she sadly died in Auschwitz in the concentration camp in 1944. But um, we honor her because we remember that there is a tradition of women rabbis and, and women's desire to study and to be uh, part of the, the leadership of the Jewish community. You could even trace it back. I would even trace it back as including Rabbi Akiva's wife, who is very excited about him studying Torah and, and learning Torah herself, or Rabbi Meir's wife, Breria, who had her own thoughts and some of her commentaries and, and her ideas are in the Torah, I mean, in the Talmud itself. Um, which are recorded. So, you know, women have been interested in and uh, part and parcel of creating Jewish culture and in leadership in Jewish positions um, in Jewish communities throughout time, but officially as a rabbi in 1935 with Regina Jonas. Um, and uh, there was actually another rabbi uh, rabbi Frank. She was known as the girl rabbi of the West, which is interesting that they would phrase it that way. But um, makes you sound like a cowgirl rabbi. <laughs> she was because she was out here in the wild West. Like, I actually, if you look it up online, you can find a, an article in the San Francisco newspaper about her. Um, so she's my role model because I'm known as one of the women rabbis in the West. <laughs> I'm, you know, and that's what I dress up for is Purim. Every year, Purim is a Jewish holiday where it's kind of like Halloween. You dress up and you think about oh what gosh, your life could have so been cool. like. <laughs> yeah, I got my, my cowboy hat downstairs. I'm sure she didn't wear a cowboy hat. But she went around the West and she was preaching and she was drawing out those values, morals, and lessons from the Torah for the people all around the West. And I, I, I really appreciate that. But. The Women's Rabbinic Network um, was therefore founded in 1980. So the first uh, woman rabbi in the reform movement in 1972 was Sally Prezan. So by 1980, there were a good 15 women rabbis that organized with about 60 other uh, rabbinical students. They were organized around 1976 and then founded the Women's Rabbinic Network in 1980. And it's a great organization. I was... Uh, so overjoyed to learn about its existence uh, in my penultimate year of rabbinical school and went to the conference. We have conferences every two years and um, we, we do lots of things. We support one another's work. We have a lot of ongoing educational programs. Um, we also uh, advocate for uh, women's rights, things like uh, female faculty in our rabbinical seminaries, pay equity, addressing the wage gap, uh, paid family leave, which benefits men too, it benefits all genders, right? The, the more that we can think about how we want to lift up families, uh, the better, and support families that have children, young children especially. Um, we also work on creating safe, equitable, respectful workplaces through our hashtag MeToo uh, involvement as well. So we're all over. We also support the leadership of other women rabbis. So um, making sure that, that uh, there's opportunities and representation in journals, publication journals, and on boards and, and things. So it's a great organization that, that is... Uh, really without the trappings of ego and, um, and uh, understanding that, you know, it's not about how big your congregation is and if you're in congregational life or not, it's really about um, supporting 
one another to make sure that we have the space that we need to become and be the rabbis that we know we are. That sounds like such an incredible place to be. And me and many other people definitely appreciate the work that you do out there to help different women around the world. So historically, women have played a lot of different roles in Judaism throughout the years. And earlier, you mentioned Purim, which celebrates a very important Jewish lady, Esther. Yes. So what are some of these roles and how have they evolved over the years? <laughs> it's such a good question. Yeah, so it's kind of like my my heroines, right? <laughs> like who who are my heroines? Like definitely Esther, right? Looking into, you know, this idea, this amazing story about a Jewish woman who um, people didn't necessarily know that she was Jewish, and she was able to at some point in her life come out about being Jewish and save the entire Jewish people from an anti-Semitic henchman. Um, so the ability, right, the lessons that we learn from that kind of a story are to be your authentic self and to share who you are and to recognize that when you go through a hardship in life or that you have a call to stand up for justice, that perhaps that you were put in that position right then explicitly for that reason right, to be able to answer the call to justice. So she's definitely someone, um, as far as, you know, there's there's a, this old school idea about the Jewish woman who lights candles in, in the home, and that's a really beautiful role that women still do play also, um, you know, and again, for all of these roles, it's, it's a question of Jewish women should do whatever Jewish women would like to do, and that would be the definition of success. So it's not like you're not a successful Jewish woman if you don't light candles. But um, your, your namesake, Sarah, in the Bible is said to have lit candles every Shabbat in the, in the home, which I think is a, a beautiful um, tribute to, to be someone who sanctifies space and who makes sure that there's a time for rejuvenation and reflection and um, brings in a sense of the ephemeral. Thank you uh, for that. I normally just get stuck with jokes about like, Abraham's wife and, and Hagar and stuff. And I'm just like, yeah, there's a little more than that, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, she was pretty, she was awesome. I mean, you know, she was able to go down to Egypt with Abraham and make sure that they didn't get killed or, you know, that she didn't get, anyway. That's right. She was a tough cookie. She was a tough cookie. She was going behind the lines. <laughs> um, so yeah, so so Sarah as well, you know, I think about the uh, women in the suffragist movement. There were a lot of Jewish women there. I think about Bella Abzug, who was a great champion of justice. I think about Emma Lazarus, who uh, wrote the poem on the Statue of Liberty. I think about the the Jewish women in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, who who stood up for the rights of workers. And uh, I think about all of the Jewish women who are living intersectional lives as well and who understand how to create community and, and bridges across communities that some might think are completely separate, but who actually are, live their fully integrated, wonderful lives um, authentically and unabashedly and, and supporting, supporting that work like uh, Jews in the, the Black Jewish Liberation Collective or uh, Jews like my own wife, who uh, is a someone who converted to Judaism, uh, so she's a Jew by choice and and lives proudly as a Filipina and Jew, and we're raising our family as completely integrated beings. So I think that you know all of those are are ways that Jews kind of express ourselves in society 
and um, it's it's inspirational about how much diversity there is out there. That's a very incredible story and very inspiring about how all these different women came together to try to make the world a better place for other people and they didn't let anything get in their way and that's why the story of Esther always resonated with me because even though she was very much afraid of what was going to happen she knew that she had to do the right thing to protect her people and keep them safe and she ended up facing her fears and being brave despite all of the adversity she faced but in the end she ended up okay and she helped out quite a few people through what she did so to me that always reminded me that even if you feel scared you can still overcome anything that is in your way and help other people absolutely and i wrote a book called resolutions a practical guide for self-repair and actually one of the and esther is in that book as well but the first reading is actually this jewish idea that always gives me strength as well in those times when you know you're trying to push yourself to stand up and do the right thing at any given moment. There's a text that says that above every single blade of grass is an angel over it saying, grow, grow, right? Excitedly, you know, making sure that that there's a cheer, a cheerleader in your corner, right? Not just like every blade of grass, so too is each person. So the idea is that, you know, the universe is rooting for us. It's rooting for us to stand up for what's right. It's rooting for us to, to make the world that this world can be. Uh, to, to make this world resemble a little bit of heaven and equity and justice a bit more. Um, and so that's really encouraging to think about the, the idea of the universe rooting for each of us and in all of our growth. That is very beautiful. And I love the analogy of angels being like cheerleaders leading people on <laughs> to do the right thing and keep going. Right. So you also have your own podcast called People Keeping It Sacred. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. Thanks. So much like you, I'm very interested in uh, interfaith dialogue. I'm also just very interested in what makes people light up and what what encourages them to do amazing things in the world. Um, so I identify people that I think are keeping it sacred, that are doing really amazing things. And really it's, you know, a lot of times people say, how do you find these people to, to be interviewed on your podcast? And like, I just know people who I think are amazing. Like I'm their cheerleader, I'm cheering people on um, in what they're doing. And um, I think I could probably interview just about anybody on this show, honestly. Um, because people are doing such amazing things. But I, I interview people who are doing amazing things in the world that I think that people should know about. And um, they're people who are keeping it sacred, all from all different religious traditions, different spiritual journeys, um, different sectors in, in the world, other clergy of di different denominations or different faiths. Um, it's a it's a potpourri of people, but who are doing extraordinary things. So I'm meaning it to be instructive for people if people find uh, instructional value in learning how they're doing what they're doing, but also just inspirational. There's pure inspirational value in learning that these other people exist on the planet right now. In the Jewish tradition, we actually say that at any given time, there's 36 completely righteous people on the planet. And when one dies, another one is born. And um, I don't think it has to be limited to 36. There's so many amazing people out there on the planet, but my goal is to interview as many people as I can to bring out um, what I see as is, is truly inspirational in the world. 
I can see why you don't have a hard time getting guests. You're definitely very fun to talk to. Thanks. Thanks. You too. You're welcome. So uh, my next question is, would you like to share some of your experiences as a leader of different Jewish congregations? That's such a great question because there's been so many amazing insights that I've had into the rabbinate that I've had because I've been in so many different positions, right? Like when I was working at UCLA Medical Center, some of the things that we were uh that we needed to do was to hold people's hands before surgery or to speak with the, the spouses of the person who was in the hospital or to lead a family to, to make major decisions around end of care, end of life care. Um, so, so being there, you know, and I worked in the NICU, so the neonatal intensive care unit. So being with families when their, their babies are just new in the world and then coming to the realization that there's some major medical challenges ahead. Um, so being able to be there for people and help them identify the resources that they have, the spiritual resources that they have. So for some people that's music, for some people that's reading you know, scripture, for some reason, that, for some people that's uh, ritual, um, for some people, that's just connecting them with their support systems, their friends, and making sure that they have the time to talk with their their people. So, um, helping people do that, you know, when I was a, a middle school rabbi, you know, helping people think about what kind of Judaism do they want to claim for themselves. Middle school is around the time when people become bar or bat mitzvah. So, you know, a lot of times kids do that because their parents have led them to it. But once you become bar or bat mitzvah, it's up to you now. It's up to you to decide what kind of role you want Judaism to play in your life. So helping them identify what motivates them and what they that what they authentically connect to in the Jewish tradition was really special. Working at the American Jewish University as a professor of graduate students in the, uh, the education program, I taught them liturgy. And that was really exciting because that was teaching students uh, who were going to become teachers themselves and uh, teach the next generation. What do they know about liturgy and how can they get excited about spirituality and, and, and digging deep into self-reflective work as well? And then working in congregational life, you know, there's so much diversity. What I love about congregational life is that there, that you are really providing cradle to the grave experiences. You know, I've had five month old students and I've had 95 year old students in my classes. 97, I think was the oldest person that I ever um, taught a class for. And that was in, in prayer. And, you know, I think it's amazing to think about how lifelong Jewish study is so inspiring to people and that we're never done with studying and, and that, you know, you can always go deeper in your own spiritual practice. You can always go deeper in your understanding of your people or where you come from or the, the people that you've chosen to, to be with in the world. Um, it's really exciting and inspiring to be able to, to do that. And now I founded something called Keeping It Sacred. It's a center for Jewish learning. All of our learning is accessible and relevant and empowering, um, which I think you can get a flavor of in, in our discussion today, but to make sure that uh, people have access to free quality Jewish learning, um, whatever religious denomination you're in, whatever lot in life you are in, um, if you're interested in learning about Judaism, this is the place to go. Um, we also provide ritual experiences, weddings, you know, funerals, that kind of a thing. And we also uh, love to enact our Torah in the world, the values that we learn about 
uh, one day, we want to put those into practice the next day. So we have a, a pretty comprehensive justice program and way that we express our Jewish values in the world, a deep, deep commitment to social justice. That's such an incredible journey that you've had through your faith and all of the different places it's taken you and I'm sure all the different people that you've gotten to meet from it. But then prayer is sort of like the one thing that stays the same, even though there's a lot of changes. So what are some of the different ways that Jewish people use prayer in their lives? Um, when someone sneezes, they say, bless you. <laughs> but I got you on that one. <laughs> well, you know, there's lots of ways. So yes, that's, you know, there was actually, um, that, that is, you know, I think that we forget that how much prayer is infused in our lives just in general. Um, and uh, to live without prayer would be to live without that, right? To live without being able to, to just let another person know that you're thinking about them, that you're directing good energy toward them, you know, that you've, you've got them, you've got their back, right? There's nothing more awkward when you sneeze and no one says, bless you, <laughs> right? You know, it's just a way of saying that, you know, I'm caring about you and I think about you. So, um, you know, traditionally that's done in prayer services. In the Jewish tradition, we have prayer services three times a day. And um, a lot of people really put emphasis on Friday night or Saturday morning or both, uh, because that is Shabbat, the day, the Jewish day of rest. But there's a, um, you know, other opportunities as well. Some people also uh, pull together a lot of, there's women's groups during Rosh Chodesh. Rosh Chodesh is the, the head of the month. So monthly, there are Jewish women's groups or other Jewish groups that really reflect on life. Um, it's a celebration of the new moon. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's healing services, there's all kinds of, you know, uh, other ways that prayer manifests. You can, there's no time when you can't, uh, pray, although prayer is actually discouraged between the time when you have, um, a loved one die until the time that they're buried. And I find that really interesting that, you know, when you will will find a hard time to praise God and thank God for life is when your loved one is dead before you. And so I think that there's a really beautiful sensitivity that the Jewish tradition has that, you know, there's no obligation in the same way there might be an obligation other times of the day or other, other weeks um, to actually pray three times a day that, that there's, there's, Rachamim. Rachamim is like compassion on the mourners. And I, I find that really interesting. So when we talk about when we pray and how we pray. There's also when we don't pray or when we're not required to pray. With that, I will say that my grandmother died. My hundred-year-old grandmother died uh, about six months ago, not of COVID, but during these COVID times. And I found it really difficult to not be able to gather with community during that time. But what people did for me um, on her behalf was uh, between the time that she died and the time that she was buried, they each recited a different psalm in her honor and her loving memory. So what they did was they, they prayed in, uh, in her loving memory. And that was incredibly comforting because it was at a time when I'm not required to pray and um, in, in the most acute space of my own grief that people could pray 
on her behalf. There's a tradition that you would have someone sitting next to the body, praying for the body, reciting these psalms. Um, and in times of COVID, I wanted to make sure that that we could provide her with that. And so people from around the world really stepped up to do that. So that was incredibly comforting. So prayer in a time of COVID means adaptation. And uh, we certainly are able to do that. I guess I would say one other thing, one other time that I think it's really a beautiful thing to pray is uh, right before you study Torah. Right before we study Torah, keeping it sacred, I always ask, who are we studying in honor of? with hopes of healing for or in loving memory of. And I allow participants to go around the room and just dedicate our study time to those people um, as a way to lift up their names, as a way to show comfort, as a way to show compassion and a way to kind of put good energy out there in the world. I believe that anytime you do something that's really good in the world, you're creating something called zechut. Zechut is like goodness in the world so let's you know let's dedicate that goodness to the things that matter most for us and that's you know these these blessings that we have for people and then once we dedicate the class learning then we say the blessing for study and the blessing for torah study is uh blessed you adonai our god ruler of the universe who hallows us with your mitzvot and commands us and i love this part to immerse ourselves in words of torah and that idea of immersing yourself, you know, when you really immerse yourself, that's when, when you're walking on the path and you find an oppor opportunity to have that moral dilemma or that question of what to do, you know, that, that that Torah that you've been seeped in can come to the fore and let you know how to, how to proceed. So we immerse ourselves in Torah. So those are really sacred blessings to be able to recite as a community. But some people, you know, do med meditation or, you know, nature walks and um, all of these. There's lots of Jewish precedent for the, those kinds of practices, like like medieval Jewish precedent or, and you know, ancient Jewish precedent for those kinds of practices as well. I think that's a very unique set of traditions that they have associated a prayer. And that's one of the things that always interested me a lot is how many there are and how they apply to pretty much any aspect of your life, but then also how much they reflect on our human qualities. Like specifically, you mentioned the, the part about mourning and how people aren't required to pray during the time of after a loved one's died and before they're buried and that's something that you don't really see so much with other religions and it's also something that I'd never really thought about before myself so that really helps broaden my perspective so thank you. Thank you for reflecting that I appreciate that. So do you have any prayers you would like to share with our audience today? Yeah I think I do I think that you know one thing that it's funny I was coming out of the the I was coming out of rabbinical school. There's a building on West 4th and Mercer, right by West 4th and Broadway in New York. And that's uh, that's where rabbinical school is, Hebrew Union College. I went to the New York campus, yay, New York campus. Um, and uh, coming out on the building is this giant metal menorah on the building. And so someone was walking by and they're like, is that Jewish? And I was like, yeah, it's a rabbinical school. They're like, are you a rabbi? I was like, well, I was in training at that time to be one. And they said, will you give me a blessing? And I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> so the, this is the blessing that I want to give you too. Um, it's a blessing from the book of Numbers. 
It's called the Priestly Benediction. So it's a Jewish blessing, and it is found in the book of Numbers. You can look it up. It's in Numbers 6, verses 23 through 27, and it's a blessing that the priests, the Kohanim, would say to the people. And uh, my great-grandfather was known as a Kohen uh, from this traditional line of the Kohanim. And the blessing is, Yevarechecha Adonai Vishmarecha. May God bless you and keep you. Ya'er Adonai Panavelecha Vichuneka. May the light of God's countenance shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Yisa Adonai Panavelecha Vyasemlecha Shalom. May God lift up God's face to you and give you peace. Amen. And I think that that's uh, one of the blessings that we can all always give to one another, just the idea that we can um, have the light of the divine shine on us and within us and to be guarded, guarding us and to be blessing us and, and to give us each peace because uh, human beings are always yearning for peace and uh, the world is a very chaotic place and it's always this battle against entropy. And to be able to, to just take a moment to, to do that, I really appreciate you asking the question. I also want to share one more thing about that blessing, which I think is really cool. It's um, the way that the prayer is, is written. It's in three sentences. And the first one talks about how God is blessing you and guarding you. It's like God from on high is blessing you and guarding you. And then the next sentence is the, the light of God's face is shining to you, like face to face, like you're on the same plane as the other person. You're on the same level looking at God um, face to face, interacting with God face to face. And then the next one is, you know, may God lift you up and give you peace. And that's like putting you even above God. And so the idea is that you're really in this one blessing, you're really being lifted up by God from whatever place that you're in and that you're really um, in that relationship with God. Um, and, and when I say God, let me just specify that I'm not specifying. <laughs> that there's The Kabbalists would call God Ein Sof, which means without end. So any kind of definition of God was too little for what God is, right? If I say it's a man in the sky with a beard, that's too little. <laughs> if I say God is a man, that's too little, right? Like we have to think about God as an expanse, so not necessarily as, as an anthropomorphosis, you know, can be thought of as the energy in the world, a creator, whatever, that life force, that driving life force that scientists haven't been able to uh, create uh, themselves. Um, so just, you know, being in relationship and being able to, to give one another that peace. Sometimes I, in non-COVID times, I like to encourage people to to give each other that blessing because, you know, I as a clergy person can give people that blessing, but also I want to make sure that everyone's empowered to be able to be a blessing in one another's lives as well. And to, sometimes that just means to offer to, to see other people as they are to, and to be seen. That's like the biggest gift and the biggest blessing you can give to people most of the time. I really appreciate you sharing that blessing with our audience and with me today. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about on the show? What I would love to, to share with your audience is just a, a welcome to check out Keeping It Sacred. We're at keepingitsacred.com. Uh, we're at 
the on Instagram and Twitter at, at keeping it sacred. I'd also love to invite people to check out the Women's Rabbinic Network at womensrabbinicnetwork.org or on Instagram at WRN underscore women underscore rabbis or on Facebook. We're on all of us are on Facebook as well. And if anyone has any questions about being a rabbi, being, you know, Jewish spirituality, Judaism, anything really, I'm I'm available. I'd love to to hear from anyone who has any kind of questions or interest in talking with a rabbi. If you'd like to learn more about the Women's Rabbinic Network and get involved in their mission, visit www.womensrabbinicnetwork.org. Rabbi Miller's book, Resolutions, A Practical Guide for Self-Repair, is available at lulu.com. You can find her podcast on Spotify and any other podcast streaming services.